there! Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! We're going to continue with our series, uh, The Heart of the Savior, and we've just been looking at how Jesus acts, reacts, and interacts with people who are in desperate need of a Savior, uh, people who are in desperate need of saving. Uh, and so at the core of the heart of Jesus, we've been saying this, when you peel everything away, you're going to find love and you're going to find compassion. And we, in turn, are supposed to be imitators of Christ. And so when you peel our heart away, at the very core, love and compassion should reside. And so we're going to continue with that series. And the first couple of weeks, I had you stand as we read uh, the Scripture. Uh, but this is kind of a longer passage, so we're going to read it as we go along. But in order to, to set us up this morning... We're eventually going to make our way to John chapter not or chapter eight. In John chapter eight, you will find uh, a story at the beginning, an event that happened that is subtitled in many of your Bibles, "The Woman Caught in Adultery." The woman caught in adultery, and so the Cliff Notes version of this story that we're going to look into in detail is Jesus is in the temple teaching. And a woman is brought before him who was caught in the act of adultery. So they bring him to Jesus in the temple courts and they ask him just a a simple yes or no question. Should we we execute her? The law says we should stone her. Should we we stone her? We caught her uh, sleeping with another man, a married man. What, what, What do you say we should do? And then Jesus always does these weird things and I love it. Um, He doesn't answer them. He just bends down on the ground and starts scribbling in the, in the dirt. I like to imagine he took like 20 minutes just to make him sweat. He's just there writing. And then he stands up after he, he writes on the ground. He simply looks at the accusers, the Pharisees and the scribes, and says, well, let he who is without sin, you throw the first stone. And then he bends back down and he starts writing in the ground again. And then Scripture says, from oldest to youngest, they begin to walk away. I like that because uh, with age, I don't like aging at all. I don't like hurting myself sleeping or drinking water. But um, with age comes wisdom, and you know when you've been beat, right? And so the older guys are like, oh, yeah, he's got us, and they walk away. But, you know, kind of the young bravado punks with their chest out, these young Pharisees are still, you know, kind of hanging in there to the very end. They walk away. And then it's just the woman and Jesus. I think Jesus kind of picks her up and he's looking at her. And he, he asks her a question. He says, is there anyone left to condemn you? And she looks around and says, no, my Lord. And then Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And as we, went, as we make our way through this passage, I, I want you to understand a couple things right out of the gate. We call it the woman caught in adultery. That's that's what we subtitle this event. But I think it would be healthy for us to remind ourselves that this woman actually has a name. She actually has a face. She actually has a life story just like you and I. 
Maybe she was abused as a child. Maybe she was sold into prostitution. She's trying to work her way out for a better life. Maybe she was coerced or even forced into this situation, which is ultimately a trap for Jesus. Nobody knows. But here's one thing we do know. To Jesus, she was much more than just a woman caught in adultery. That was not her sole identity. She is a woman made in the image of God, marred by her sin, and in desperate need of a Savior. She is a woman who Jesus loves and will eventually go hang on a cross for her sins just like yours and I's. But to the Pharisees, the religious leaders who brought her out, she was a nameless, faceless, soulless, pointless pawn in a political game they were trying to play against Jesus. But man, to the Savior, she was a human being with a soul who was fearfully and wonderfully made. She was a young lady who had hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties. She had a story and she had a name. Now, John, the author, does not tell us her name. But for today's story's sake, I'm going to name her. Let's call her Mary. Not Mary Magdalene, as some have tried to argue who this woman is. Not Mary, the sister of Martha, as others have argued. But we're going to call her Mary because Mary was a very common name in the New Testament times. Because I don't want her to be a nameless, faceless, minor character in this story. She is Mary, a woman with a story that God cares about. Just like he cares about your story and my story. She is Mary, a sinner in need of a Savior, and her heavenly Father knew how many hairs were on her head at that exact moment. She's just like you, and she's just like me. And so as we jump into this passage, and as we navigate through it together, I want you to remember three things. First thing I want you to remember is simply this. We've all been there. We have all been there. When I was in high school, I did something incredibly stupid and incredibly embarrassing. I got in trouble. I got caught. I got grounded. By, so I got in trouble at school. I got in trouble with my parents. Uh, it, I was just so embarrassed. But what bothered me the most was my dad told me he told my grandfather what I had done. And I loved my grandfather. He was my spiritual hero. I, you know, he, I didn't want to disappoint him. And he's like, man, I think your grandfather is going to be very disappointed. And, and so he told him. And so the net result, as I was always wanting to go over there, is I didn't want to go. I, I wanted to avoid him because I was just absolutely embarrassed, ashamed, humiliated. Well, finally, my dad made me go. And uh, I, the, I never forget, I saw my grandfather, and he walks right over to me, and he puts his arms around me, and he said, grandson, that's what he called me, grandson, because he had like 33 grandchildren, and I honestly think he didn't know our names, but he knew our genders, so he's like, grandson, so he gives me this big old hug, and he says, grandson, we've all been there. We've all made mistakes, and so as we dive into this encounter the first thing I want you to remember is, man, we've all been there. John chapter 8, we'll pick up in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, 
he came back again to the temple. So he's in Jerusalem. He's in the holy city. He's in the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, these are religious leaders, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. So they know Jesus is in the temple teaching and preaching, and they don't like it. Every time Jesus would come to Jerusalem, there was an all-out war with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They wanted to trap him. They're trying to set a trap. In fact, later in the text, John's going to tell us they, they're doing these things because they want to try to arrest Jesus. So you have this woman who was probably way younger than any of us are even comfortable imagining, was drugged into the temple courts, into the, where God was worshipped, most likely naked or having a small blanket, scared to death, trembling, utterly ashamed, and utterly humiliated. Look at verse 4 and 5. They, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Let me stop right there. In order to bring charges up against a person in Jewish law, you had to have two witnesses, and both of those witnesses would have to physically see this woman having adultery with, with, a, with a married man, right? Okay, so she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, where's the man? We don't know. Uh, speculation says they didn't really care about the man. They didn't really care about the woman. They just wanted to bring her to trap Jesus. Okay, so here's the scene. And so they ask him, well, what do you think? You're the great teacher. You claim to be the son of God. You claim to know everything. Jewish law says if a woman is called in the act of adultery, we are to drag her out of the city and stone her. What do you say, Jesus? They're trying to trap him. Because if Jesus just says outright, I don't, it doesn't matter about the law, let her go, they're going to, he's going to lose all his followers. They're going to say, you're not a good Jewish rabbi. You don't even follow the law. But if Jesus had said, yep, yeah, let's stone her. It's on my authority. I give you permission. He would have broken Roman law because the Jewish people were allowed to execute, but they had to have Roman permission right? Remember the story in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9? This guy named Stephen is being stoned to death, and as he's dying, uh, you have this little footnote and says, and there was Saul giving approval to his death. He had permission from the Roman government to execute. So Jesus didn't. So they're trying to trap him. They're trying to, to get him to lose followers or at best arrest, try, and execute him. So this is the situation this young lady finds herself in. She is just a pawn. The only thing standing between her and death by stoning was Jesus. And I want you to understand this. All of us, like this woman, have been caught red-handed in the act of sin, and we have stood condemned by God's holy law. Now you say, well, I've never committed adultery. Well, maybe you've never committed adultery, but you've been caught red-handed at something, right? We've all been caught with our proverbial hand in the cookie jar. We've all done things where we've been embarrassed, ashamed, just 
utterly and absolutely humiliated. Our sins catch up with us. And like this young woman, we stood condemned by the law. But Jesus freed us from that. And so when we encounter people who are struggling with their sins, we've got to remember that we were once in that position. Do you know the difference between the word sympathy and the word empathy? Okay, let me, let me, I, I am a terrible wordsmith. I'm a terrible English student. Like the, the fact that I publicly speak for a living is a miracle in itself. All right, and so I, I've had these words kind of mixed up, sympathy and empathy. I've always viewed uh, sympathy as like kind of you don't want to have sympathy because that's just pity. I don't need your pity, but empathy is more like I'm trying to feel like you feel. And so we, we kind of minimize sympathy and, and we heighten empathy. And so this week I was studying the words and I was looking at this passage and I asked all of our staff members this question. I said, when it comes to the sinner, who, a person who is, has an unregenerate heart, they're not saved by Jesus and they're stuck in their sins, is it better for us as Christians to have sympathy or is it better for us as Christians to have empathy? And you would think empathy would be the right answer. But it would be better for us to have sympathy, and here's why. When you break down these two words, the word sympathy comes from the Greek. It's two words put together, sim, which means together, and pathos, which means feelings. And so the word sympathy means feeling together. In other words, you can have sympathy. Sympathy is used when one person shares the feelings of another, all right? And so if there is a, uh, maybe somebody who is addicted to meth and there is a person who has been addicted to meth and they've conquered it, they can say, I have sympathy. I have been where you've been. I know how you feel. Does that make sense? Okay, now empathy, this word, it's also linked to the, the last part, pathos, which means feeling or emotion, but it differs from sympathy carrying an implication of what psychologists call a greater emotional distance. Because with empathy, you can't imagine, you don't know how they feel. You but what you try to do is you try to imagine how they feel. You try to put yourself in their shoes. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so in general, stay with me, sympathy is when you share the feelings of another. When, whereas empathy is when you try to understand the feelings of another. Now, I, I bring this up to say this. The last thing we need in the church is a bunch of empathetic Christians standing on our ivory towers pointing down at people, right? What we need is sympathetic Christians who are in the trenches saying, I've been where you are now. In other words, we don't stand there with just empathy for the sinner. We don't stand there and say, oh, I could never imagine how it would feel to be caught in adultery. Or I could never imagine how, how I would feel if I was like that person, right? And so we stand up there in our ivory tower. I could just never imagine, but I'm trying to feel like you. I'm trying, blah, 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 blah. We stand before the sinner with sympathy. We say, yes, I know how you feel because that's how I felt. 
when I was lost in my sin, man, I felt like the whole world was against me. I felt like my family was against me. I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed. I was in such a dark place. I just wanted to crawl in a hole and hide. My life was a wreck. I was lost in my sins. I was living without purpose. I was just trying to fill it with things and money and relationships. And it was just leaving me empty. I was broken and lost. But then I met Jesus. It would be so helpful to remind ourselves that, yeah, we've been there. There is not a person in this room who is any better than this young woman that was brought before Jesus. Second thing I want you to see is that Jesus brings judgment on the judges. Now, let me, let me say this, and I, I, sometimes I want you to leave scared and frustrated. If you have a body full of legalistic bones, you're going to cringe because it is not your responsibility to judge people. It is not even my responsibility to judge sinners. You see, instead of passing judgment on the woman, Jesus passes judgment on the judges on the scribes and the Pharisees, on the experts of the law. And what I want you to understand is this. The lady in the story, Mary, is a sinner, but she's not the villain. The villains are the legalistic religious scribes and Pharisees. They're trying to politically trap Jesus using this woman who has a name, who has a face, who has a soul, to manipulate the crowd to not follow Jesus. John tells us this. Look, verse 6. They, the scribes and the Pharisees, said this to test him. Some of your translations are going to say to trap Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. I love this. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when he heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So whenever this passage is preached, I think the number one question that everybody wants to know is, what was Jesus writing on the ground? Like, I get asked a lot of questions. I think I get asked that question more than like, hey, preacher, what's heaven going to be like? Like, we just want to know, what, what is Jesus writing on the ground? If anybody tells you they know the exact answer, they're, they're not telling you the truth because no one really knows. There's all kinds of speculations. Some people think that they were, he was writing one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. Some people think he was writing uh, the names of the scribes and the Pharisees that were trying to bring these Trump charges up. Some, some people think he was listing the sins of the Pharisees. Some people think that he was listing the name of the man who wasn't there. Why isn't he there? Nobody really knows. But I, one of my favorite commentators is Warren W. Wearsby, and, and I love uh, his thought or his explanation as to what Jesus might have been writing. He said, I'd like to imagine that Jesus was jotting down in the dirt, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, which reads this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you 
shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So in my mind, I imagine the first time Jesus is bending on the ground, he's writing that scripture out. Then he comes up and he says, let he who has no sin throw the first stone. And maybe they, they don't start moving right away. So he bends down again and he starts writing their names and attaching it to Jeremiah, uh, to that, that verse of scripture, chapter 17. Uh, that's just my explanation. But what I want you to see in the passage is that Jesus doesn't judge the woman. He judges the judges. Now, we're told to have the attitude in the heart of Jesus. And let me say this again. It is not your responsibility to judge your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates who are without Jesus Christ. We are not given that responsibility. In fact, we are told, we are discouraged from acting this way, yeah? Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Some of your translations are going to say, judge not lest you be judged. But I'm going to read it differently. Don't condemn others, and God won't condemn you. God will be as hard on you as you are on others. Just, just stop and think about that just for a second. The way we have these prejudices and these uh, presuppositions and and stereotypes and the way we kind of judge sinners and judge people. God says, if that's how you're going to treat people, that's how I'll judge you, right? If you're going to be harsh, I'll be harsh. And he says, he will treat you exactly as you treat them. So let me just say this. It is so, so easy to point fingers at people, right? It is so easy to say, well, you know, I might not be the best person, but look at that girl over there or look at that guy over there, right? And we are judging people. This past February, the staff and uh, several of the leadership uh, families went to a conference in Savannah uh, called the Next Level Conference. It's a Compassion Christian Church. And there was this preacher there, and he told this story that was a true story, and I just loved it, but, uh, you know, I wanted to say, I wonder if this is really true. So I googled it, and it was true, and, and, and so I want to share this with you as an illustration uh, it's a true story. <clears throat> it happened to a man in England. His name was Damien Lowe. Now, <clears throat> Damien Lowe just had walked out onto his street like any normal day, uh, getting ready to go to work or, or run errands or, or something, and he's standing there on the street, and a white van speeds up and pulls right in front of him. Six or eight like goons get out, grab him, throw him in the van, and they speed off. They, they've kidnapped Damien Lowe. They then send a message to his family. We've got Damien, and you need to come up by the end of the day with $60,000. All right, well, like any hardworking middle-class family, you're not going to be able to just pull $60,000 out of thin air. So they didn't have the money. So what they did is they cut off one of Damien's fingers, and they sent it to the family to, sh to show them how serious they were. Now, here's the caveat. They let Damien pick which finger to cut off. They said, listen, we're gonna, your family hasn't responded. We're going to cut one of your fingers off. But, you know, I guess we're gracious goons. We're going to let you pick which finger you want to be cut off. Now, this whole ordeal happened within a matter of just hours. So they didn't give him time to think about it. All right. So I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question. All right. 
Put yourself in his shoes. All right, you leave church here. You're rolling up to to uh, Longhorn to beat the Baptist to the steakhouse, right? And a van grabs you, kidnaps you, and they're going to cut one of your fingers off, and you have to pick which finger to cut off. Which one would you pick? I'm going to give you three seconds to think about it, all right? All right. How many of you said, I'll cut my pinky off? Pinky. Small, insignificant. I don't need this little thing, right? Okay. How many of you said, no, 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 I think I'll cut my ring finger off? A couple of you. All right. Now, I'm not going to flip you off, but how many of you... S- pick the middle finger, right? The middle finger, right? We could probably do without middle fingers in this world, especially when we're driving. All right. So anyway, all right. How many of you say the pointer, the pointer finger here, this one? All right. How about your thumb? How about your thumb? Okay. Now here's what's interesting. Hold that for just a second. Hand surgeons will tell you unequivocally, there's one right answer. There's four absolute wrong answers, and if you are going to have to have a finger cut off, there is a definite right answer. In other words, if you ask hand surgeons, 100%, they're going to tell you to cut off the exact same finger. So show of hands again, how many of you said pinky? Pinky. All right, you would think pinky. No, that's one of the last fingers you want to lose. Did you know that 80% of your hand strength to grip things it's because of your pinky, because of this, this ligament that runs here. Without a pinky, you can barely pick things up. So don't cut your pinky up. How many of you said ring finger? Ring finger. A couple of you. All right, so here's the thing about the ring finger. Surgeons will tell you that the ring finger has this ligament that attaches the ring and the middle finger together. So if you cut the ring finger off, the middle finger loses a lot of mobility. You can barely use the middle finger. So you're actually losing two fingers for the price of one, if that makes sense. Okay, how many of you said middle finger? All right, same problem with the middle finger, right? If you cut the middle finger off, the ring finger doesn't work because they're attached with the same ligament, so you're getting two for the price of one. Now, did anybody say your thumb? No, we're not crazy, right? Because if, oh, one person, if you don't have a thumb, you don't have a hand, right? Because you don't have, your thumb is the only finger that you can touch all your fingers with. You just have like a nub with four things. You can't really grab things. So thumb is the wrong answer. The right answer a hundred percent of the time, according to hand surgeons, is if you are in a van, kidnapped, and your kidnappers say you've got to lose one finger, and they give you the option, always pick the pointer finger. Always pick this finger. This is the finger that you can do without. And friends, I think this is the finger that the church can do without. We have to stop constantly pointing our fingers at people saying, you're not worthy to come in here. You're not ready to accept Christ. You need to fix yourself up first. You're broken. You should feel terrible about yourself. You should just sit here and think about what you did. You've made Jesus very upset and God is very angry. And I don't know if anything's ever going to change, right? We don't need those type of Christians. Instead, we take this finger and we stop pointing at people and we point them to Jesus and we say, listen, I was broken like you. I understand. I have been there. What you need to do is you need to take your stuff to him because he's got restoration. He's got salvation. He's got all the joy and all the hope and all the peace that you could ever want. So stop pointing at them and start pointing to to, to Jesus because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. I'm old enough to remember when uh, President Clinton had, uh, I guess you would call it an affair, uh, in the White House. It was all over the news, and 
we remember the clips like, oh, I didn't know that I have sex with that woman. Like that, whole, that whole thing, right? Remember that? It became public. And I absolutely love the response of Billy Graham when this happened. Here's what he simply said about the Clinton affair. Quote, it is the Holy Spirit's job job to convict. It's God's job to judge. And it's my job to love. End of quote. We would all do so well to remember that. Last thing I want you to see out of this text is that grace is the base. You should make a song about that. It's all about the grace. All right. Grace... Is the ba- I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was not in the script. Grace is the base, man. It's where it all begins. Look at verses 10, or look at verses 10 and 11. This is after all the accusers and the condemners and the judges are gone. Jesus stood up. I think he's looking at her eye to eye here. And he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She had to be scared to death. And she said, no, Lord. No one. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. I love Stephen Jay, <clears throat> Stephen Jay Gold's interpretation of, of this passage of Scripture. Here's what he says, and, and I think he makes a very valid point. He says, Jesus did not say, go your way and sin no more, and then... I will not condemn you. You see, her pardon was not dependent on her behavior. Rather, her pardon was the motivation to change that behavior. So so think about this. If forgiveness depends on having a perfect track record, once you are saved, once you come out of that baptist out of that water, if you had to remain perfect until you died, nobody could obtain it. Because we all sin. So God grants forgiveness as a free gift to all who put their trust in what Christ did on the cross dying for our sins. So his grace then becomes the motive to live in holiness, to please the one who gave himself up for us. So when Jesus says, hey, I don't condemn you, here's what he's saying. I love you. I'm about to die for you. So Mary, when you're tempted to sin, if you're tempted to fall back in the behavior that just almost got you stoned to death, remember I died for those sins and use that love as motivation to fight sin when it comes your way. And so we talk about judging people. And I have this problem because I am super self-critical. I think sometimes we judge ourselves very harshly, right? We just judge ourselves, and we think we're not good enough, and we think that there's constantly condemnation coming our way, that God's disappointed with us, that Jesus has fallen out of love with us. If you are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, I just want to remind you gently of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, that says this, there is therefore now no, no, it's gone, it's wiped away, condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. 
You see, grace was the base for Mary, and grace is the base for us. And I don't know if anyone's ever explained this to you, but God's grace is just outrageous. It boggles the mind. So years ago, I read this little pamphlet, this little book. It's called Proof. And it talks about God's grace a little bit, and it's, it's written by a couple authors. One of them is uh, Timothy Paul Jones. And so Timothy tells this story of taking his adopted daughter to Disney World. All right? Sounds like a great story. Let me, let me tell you how this opens up. I'm going to read straight from the book, just a line or two. He says this, quote, I've never dreamed, I mean, I've never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World would be so difficult. I could tell you that. Um, would be so difficult <laughs> or such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. So he went on to tell the story that their middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. And so when they got her, she was eight years old. And he said the couple that had adopted her the first time, they had good intentions, but they just couldn't integrate this adopted child into their family. And so after a couple rough years, they actually dissolved the adoption. They actually sent her back, which had to absolutely just overwhelm an eight-year-old girl, right? So he, he gets her to his house and he wants to take her to Disney World. He said she's, she's only seen pictures, she's only seen movies, and he went on to say for some reason or another, when she was with her previous family, they vacationed at Disney World. And they would take their biological children, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, She had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters, but she had never been there. And he said, unfortunately, at least least in her mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. So he said, I'll change that. So he adopted this girl, and they integrated her into the family, and he told her, he said, hey, we're going to go to Disney World. The whole family. You know, you've always wanted to go, and we're so excited. He said he thought that that would be like gold, but the opposite happened. He said a month out, told them they were going to Disney, and her behavior took a sharp turn for the worst. She started stealing things and stealing food and stealing from her brothers and sisters and insulting them and slapping them. It just, as the, as the trip got closer, her behavior got progressively worse. So he said, a couple days before we headed to Florida, I pulled my daughter into our lap to talk to her through her latest rebellious escapade. He said, when I pulled her in my lap, she said, I know what you're going to do. She said, you're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? He said, well, honey, is this trip something that we're doing together as a family? She said, yeah. He said, are you part of this family? She nodded again. And he said, well, then you're going with us. He said, sure, there's going to be some consequences to help you remember not to be mean to your brothers and sisters, but you're part of this family, and we're not leaving you behind. 
He went on to write that he wished that that little chat would make her behavior get better, but it got increasingly worse. He said he didn't know what to do the week before they left. It just got so bad, but they loaded up the car, and he said on the way to Disney, every rest stop, every hotel, every restaurant, she threw a fit. It just seemed to get worse and worse and worse. He said, but I stayed the course. We finally made it to Disney. And he said it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to make you want to come back the next day. (laughs) Thought he nailed that. He said, in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted. She was pensive. She was weepy. But her month-long facade of rebellion had finally faded. And when bedtime rolled around, he said, I prayed with her, and I held her in my arms, and I asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes, and she snuggled up into the next to her little stuffed unicorn. He said, after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. And she said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. God saves you. Not because you're good, but because you're his. This is the message we find in the adulterous woman. God's grace is not a favor that you can achieve by being good. It's a free gift that you receive by being his. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.